atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Northern Kentucky University political scientist Michael Baranowski. My guest today is Alexander Ward, a national security reporter at Politico and anchor of National Security Daily. He's the author of the recently released book, The Internationalists, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump, which we'll be discussing today. Alexander Ward, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. Yeah, happy to be here. So I, I thought we could start well at the very beginning with the title of your book, or actually in this case, the subtitle is where I'd like to jump in. The fight to restore American policy after Trump. Now, the assumption built into that title is, of course, that American foreign policy needed to be restored after Trump. So I thought we'd start there. What's the case you make that American foreign policy was in need of restoring in 2020? That's well, a totally fair question. And, and in fact, I should say that it w- it's not necessarily my diagnosis. It's the diagnosis of the Biden administration, who, who I write about. Right. So in there, and I know we'll get more into specifics, but basically speaking, they believe that four years of Trump was a disaster for American foreign policy, that the United States lost its its prominent position, had, had you know, angered friends, gotten closer to enemies, uh, had been more isolated on the world stage and therefore making it harder uh, to accomplish uh, what America needed to in the world and sapping American strength. So when Team Biden comes into office, they came in with the assumption that there needed to be, you know, and this one person told me we needed to save the world. Like it was that level of dire. So they came in with a sense of, you know, how best to save the world. And that's why they tried to, in their mind, um, and well, I know we'll get into this, but the, what they basically ended up doing was melding some Trumpian populism into traditional American foreign policy thinking, which has led to this sort of a hybrid Biden doctrine that we're seeing in play uh, even today. One thing I wanted to note at the very beginning is there are a lot of books about policy, whether it's foreign or domestic, that are honestly kind of dull. <laughs> and maybe they appeal to kind of more wonkish people. But what I liked about your book is that it's not at all dull. And I think in large part, that's because of the mechanism or the, the, the device you use to approach this and kind of building your narrative around one person and a person that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily suspect, but Jake Sullivan. And so I thought you could talk a little bit about why you chose that approach and well, why you chose Jake Sullivan. Sure. Well, thank you for for the compliment on on you know why it's not a, a dull book. <laughs> uh, look, I mean, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, is the key to unlocking the mystery of the Biden foreign policy. Right. He after Trump won, you know, Sullivan was right next to Hillary Clinton uh, as as she conceded to the former, you know, then candidate and uh, future president. And he felt, you know, he's he's a card-carrying member of the sort of traditional foreign policy community. And he felt that they had missed something, that for Trump to win, it wasn't all about foreign policy. It was a myriad issue. That foreign policy was part of it. So what was it that the sort of more traditional-minded American foreign policy advocates had missed? And he spent four years in the wilderness, effectively, uh, trying to figure that out, establishing an organization to to create this infrastructure and an intellectual underpinning of a next democratic foreign policy. 
and he, and he and others come up with this idea of foreign policy for the middle class, but that's sort of a catch-all term for for their thinking. And so I think to to understand where what Biden has done and where he's going and what he might do in a second term is to understand Jake Sullivan's journey and to understand how what he's been doing. And now that he's the national security advisor, I mean, he's arguably he is he is the youngest uh, since McGeorge Bundy in the Kennedy administration. But he's arguably the most powerful national security advisor and the most uh, closely linked president national security advisor combination or, or aid combination since uh, you know Nixon and Kissinger. So. So you have to sort of understand where Sullivan was thinking and what he's doing now to understand where where, where Biden is. Yeah, and, and I thought it was a great lens uh, into that. And so, but uh, another person, you talk about the National Security Advisor, and of course there's the National Security Advisor, then there's the Secretary of State, who's sort of the top formally uh, appointed person to run foreign policy. And Biden chose Tony Blinken for that role. And I was curious in that contrast between Biden and Trump, I was wondering how you would compare and contrast sort of Blinken with Mike Pompeo, who was secretary of state for the, the majority of the Trump administration. Well, one thing, uh, you know, they first, it's hard to talk about any leader or any aide without talking about the president in this case. And, you know, with Pompeo, he had a lot of sway over Trump to a certain, uh, on, on a lot of things. And Trump left him to to run a lot of things. Uh, in that sense, Pompeo was more the secretary of state, um, you know, archetype. Blinken is, is no question a, a diplomat at heart. But he, the criticism of him is that he is basically Biden's uh, staffer still, right? I mean, Blinken was the right-hand man to Biden for many years, was at the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee with him. And th there's this criticism of Blinken that he doesn't necessarily see himself as a secretary of state, although he is that. He sees himself as, as a chief foreign policy advisor. And part of that may stem from the fact that Blinken knows Biden better than almost anybody. And Biden has a lot of beliefs already on foreign policy. It's hard to sort of move him. So what Blinken does do is he uses his cachet to sway Biden sort of, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. But Biden's mind's kind of already made up. And Trump has his mind, had his mind made up on a lot of things, but he could be persuaded. And Pompeo could do that as well. But Pompeo had a lot, had a bigger leash to kind of lead his own policies. But I think what we can say is that they, Pompeo used his role in a lot more partisan way than Blinken did. Um, you might remember that he gave a speech from Jerusalem effectively endorsing uh, a, a Trump re-election. Uh, Blinken still sees himself, you know, as, yes, he, yes, he's a Democrat. Yes, he believes in Democratic ideas. Um, but he is still a guy who sees himself as he needs to be a professional manager in that job and not cross any lines. And so that, I think, would probably be the bigger difference between them. When I think back to all of the major events in foreign policy during the Biden administration, front and center to me is the Afghanistan withdrawal. And my take on this, <laughs> a couple of things, I guess. Number one, I've argued that Biden shouldn't have pulled out in the first place. And that if he was going to, well, he sure kind of did a bad job of it, uh, disastrously bad. And, and I think that's a fairly common view. And I was wondering what your perspective on that fairly common view is. I think it's totally fair <laughs> and right. I mean, I, the Biden administration has a, has a point to make when they go, look, leaving a war that we've been entrenched in for 20 years was never going to be clean. I think that's uh, totally fair. And frankly, 
you know, intellectually honest argument where they're not being honest to say that they're basically arguing that's about as good as it could have gone. And that's just wrong. Um, That is just impossibly, it's impossible to believe. Uh, And you talk to people who are in Kabul, you know, who were in Afghanistan during the time, and you can just see the chaos around it. It, There was a slapdash withdrawal. Uh, There was, I mean, obviously we saw 13 service members get killed. We saw Afghans who had been allied with the with the U.S. and Western countries for years struggle to get out, get their paperwork done. We also saw uh, an intelligence uh, assumption by the United States that it would take about 18 to 24 months for the Taliban to take over Afghanistan dwindle right before our eyes. Of course, it would shrink down to roughly 11 days. And then you also had and even before that, you saw the U.S., Kind of ignore all the signs that the Taliban was preparing for a for a just a sweep across the country the second they had their moment. So I think the key culprit here was the Biden administration thought they had a lot more time than they did to make a better withdrawal. And even though there would always be a messy one, it didn't have to be this messy and this deadly. So it's hard to believe the Biden administration's general arguments of. Well, yes, it is always going to it was always going to be that bad. No, it didn't have to be that bad. It could it would be bad, but there are degrees. And so that's where I tried to tease out the 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 what I think is the the truest argument, which is, yes, there would be chaos, it didn't, but it didn't have to be as chaotic. There's, I think, a more cynical or perhaps even conspiratorial mindset that would say, well, the the Biden administration's goal was to rip off this Band-Aid as soon as possible. They didn't care about the consequences, just hoping that since it was going to be bad, no matter what, to give him the maximum amount of time to recover politically and that they knew it was going to be bad. They didn't care and kind of put political expediency ahead of the security of the the area in the region. And, And I wonder what you think about that, that argument well i mean their general case and they're making it now uh is is that the u.s needed to get out of afghanistan in general because we needed more resources to focus on other issues and and you're hearing them kind of say that now with all the stuff that's going on with the houthis and with iran and and of course with ukraine uh, and Israel Hamas are going, isn't it great that America doesn't have to wor- you know, worry about Afghanistan anymore with all these other hotspots coming about? So, no, I don't think it's, it's not conspiratorial. I mean, this is part of strategy, right? The, the Biden administration calculated that they needed to get out of Afghanistan um, to focus on other things. Uh, it's basically simple as that. And let's not forget that as vice president, Biden did want out of Afghanistan, or at least he wanted a counterterrorism plus a much smaller footprint and and, and an effective end to the broader military mission uh, in Afghanistan. And he didn't get that. And he came into office, you know, four years after being in the White House with that same mindset. And effectively, what they decided uh, was an outgrowth of where Biden was anyway. So I think it's just, you know, when I talk to people for this book, and every time the administration goes, oh, yes, we had a really, you know, uh, a robust, inclusive, comprehensive policy review and everyone got their words in. That's all well and true. That happened. But you did have U.S. officials tell me for this book, you know, this was a kind of a pro forma review. We all knew where the president was. And in effect, this review was to get it was to see if 
anyone could change his mind. Not that they were trying to necessarily, but or, you know that was the stated goal. But it was just to go, you know, can anyone tell him, hey, your thinking is wrong? And after a couple months, Biden could not be convinced that his that his preconceived notions were wrong, and so he decided to to do what he did. But we cannot ignore, of course, that Trump did sign a deal with the Taliban that did um, say that the U.S. had to to leave Afghanistan by a certain point. And one of Biden's arguments was. That was a deal the U.S. government made, and I have to honor that no matter what. But conveniently, it aligned with what he wanted to do anyway. And you mentioned that the Biden administration felt they needed to focus on other foreign policy issues. And, of course, China and Russia are two of the big foreign policy issues. We'll get to Russia in a minute here, but I want want to start with China. In the book, you quote Jake Sullivan as saying, if you want to counter China, good luck doing it alone. We can't take Beijing militarily, economically, and technologically without our allies aboard. And I'm wondering the extent to which you feel that this view has been actually adopted and and worked through in Biden's policy toward China and how successful that attempt has been to this point. I think it's been roughly successful. I mean, look, the the, the key, it is undeniably true that the Trump administration you know, diagnosed the, what see what many in DC would see as the right problem, which is that China was taking advantage of uh, the international order and America's desire to engage with it, uh, had taken advantage of the U.S. sort of across the board. And Trump said enough and decided to impose tariffs and do other things to combat China while still working with it in other areas. The Biden administration is effectively doing the same thing, but the key difference between the Trump and Biden approaches is. Trump basically did it alone, and Biden is using allies to to go against China. So one concrete example: while I, while we should know the the Trump administration started this, saying, "Hey, you know, we should put or we should at least um, counter what Huawei and ZTE these these telecom giants in China are doing," the U.S. kind of did that mostly on its own with export controls and other kinds of tariffs. They started talking to European allies and others about it, but didn't put that much emphasis on it. The Biden team really, really did uh, and got Europe, generally speaking, on board with countering a lot of these Chinese telecom companies and and other parts of industry. And uh, then, you know, worked with and then so so it's on that. And then you can consider the fact that even though this also started under Trump, the Biden administration elevated the importance of the Quad. That's, um, you know, an alliance of countries between uh, in the U.S. And, and countries in the Indo-Pacific, got much closer to South Korea and Japan uh, in order to counter North Korea and, of course, China. So this general sense of, you know, it's a bit of burden sharing, but it's also, it, it it's one thing for the U.S. to go, you, China, bad. It's another thing for the U.S. and it's a lot of allies and partners to go, you, China, bad, that there's a bit of strength in numbers. So that is the real difference between the two approaches. You mentioned tariffs. I want to touch on that a little more. Uh, When you wrote about them in the book, one thing you said is that uh, you cited a study by the U.S.-China Business Council. Uh, It was released early in the Biden administration, said that those tariffs had cost the U.S. around 245,000 American jobs. You also mentioned the Tax Foundation, and they concluded that Trump's tariffs amounted to one of the largest increases in decades. And yet you also argue in the book that the Trump tariffs were working. And so I was, can you explain how you sort of reconcile those two things? Right. Well, well, those are two separate. One thing is if your effort is to hurt Chinese business and, and, and counter that, then yes, tariffs are a tool. 
because they do also protect American industry and they hurt Chinese industry. But you cannot deny, and no one who's imposing tariffs can deny, that, that those costs will be passed off to consumers. Right? So it's one thing that if you are making that trade-off for the foreign policy choice, it's another if you care about the general pocketbook of the, Ameri- of the American um, citizen. And that's always been the problem with foreign policy, is that usually if you do something abroad, um, it's going to have an effect uh, on, if it's not the pocketbook, the livelihood of of Americans. And so the, it's never so clean. You know, you can impose tariffs on China. They're countered in American lives get better overall. I mean, that may be also be true, but there's no question that that hurts the bottom line for many households, um, which is why you saw sort of the, the Biden administration keep some tariffs, um, not keep them all, but look for other ways to, to push on China. And they've decided sort of instead of just imposing tariffs, because let's look at the Trump strategy. The Trump strategy was mainly, even though there were investments in manufacturing uh, sector, it was mostly once we impose tariffs and we make it harder on Chinese business, then the jobs and the money will pour into the U.S. Biden kept a lot of those same tariffs and those same export controls, but also through legislation invested in technologies and and in sectors to promote industry here. And and the last numbers I saw uh, show that manufacturing uh, in the U.S. is higher today than at any point in the Trump years. It's not to say it's necessarily been a, a better strategy. Um, the numbers are good for, for Team Biden, uh, but that was, a, again, a clear difference. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Let's move from China to Russia. And of course, when we think about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, we have to go we have to go further back in time before the actual invasion because there was this massive buildup of troops on the border. I mean, it started in the spring of 2021. So that's right at the very beginning of the Biden administration. And so there was presumably a period of time where the administration uh, could have, should have attempted to exert various types of pressure on Russia to not invade. Obviously, that didn't happen. And can you talk a little bit about what those attempts were and why you think they ended up failing? Well, we, we they, it wasn't that they didn't put pressure on. Uh, they did sanction Russia over the solar wind, cyber hack, and other things. But what that built up really won Putin was a meeting with Biden in Geneva in the, in the summer of 2021. And in that meeting, you know, you did see Biden and and Putin have a meeting of the minds and go, okay, you know, these are our red lines. We're still going to come after you on your buildup outside of Ukraine, and we're going to come after you when you cyber attack, and we're going to come after you when you interfere in our in our elections. Uh, but you know, in effect, the goal was to park the Russia issue aside and deter Putin by saying, you know, do not cross these lines, otherwise you will face a retaliation. Now, I remember there was a reporter who asked Biden, you know, do, do you trust Putin? And, and, and Biden kind of erupted and goes, no, that's, a, you know, that's not a good question. Uh, I don't trust Putin, but it's good that he knows where I stand. And, you know, he, we'll see what happens. And, of course, Putin was not deterred by that conversation and he was not deterred by other U.S. action. It looked like he was going to invade 
Ukraine. I should say months later, it became clear he was going to invade Ukraine. But the Biden team left Geneva kind of high-fiving, saying that they felt that Putin got the message that that issue could be parked so that the U.S. could focus on climate change in China and other things. Uh, and the fact that, you know, Putin clearly was not deterred was assigned to, to Washington that, okay, we've got to step up our pressure here and we've got to figure out other ways to send a message across. And I know we'll talk about this later, but it is kind of amazing. We all are generally aware of the months of effort the U.S. and allies put to stopping uh, Putin from from reinvading Ukraine. And, it, you know, it, it's sort of a signal that either the U.S. really didn't put enough pressure on Putin during that time or Putin was going to do it anyway or some sort of combination of the two. Uh, one, I guess another avenue toward deterrence there would be building up or helping Ukraine build up its its military. And there are some who said if we had done more uh, along those lines, that it would have perhaps been a bigger deterrent. Were there, were there voices in the administration arguing for that sort of approach? Yeah, I mean, there were, look, this was a pretty extensive policy review by the Biden team. And there were definitely voices, Victoria Newland and the State Department and others, who were saying, send the weapons and send them now. And I should say that it's what's interesting is that the State Department, I think, had been far more and far more forward leaning in wanting to arm Ukraine early and often, whereas the Pentagon was a lot more cautious. And we should also know that Biden and his instructions to everybody about how to start planning around this, you know, one of his main three pillars was do not start World War Three. So there was this fear that if you just flooded Ukraine with a bunch of weapons, that could escalate tensions and maybe lead Putin to do a a, a large invasion before uh, any talks or any efforts to dissuade could take place. All of the thoughts about sending weapons and, and sanctions and all that were basically left then for when Putin invaded, because the thinking and the administration said this early and said this very often, they were saying, well, you know, if you basically do all these things early, then you've lost your deterrence effect. Right. To, in order to deter, you need to keep that sort of Damocles above above their head. So to send a bunch of weapons and to sanction early would lead Putin to do it anyway, because he's already been punished. Uh, that fear, we don't know, of course, what would have happened uh, had more weapons and sanctions been placed early. But we do know that what was done uh, did not did not work. Putin did invade. There was no deterrent effect. Now, it's hard to know, you know, was Putin going to do it regardless? That's very possible. Uh, but there are there were voices and there still are voices that feel that, that was a missed opportunity. And there are some who would argue that that fear of escalation has been sort of an ongoing strategic miscalculation. Uh, first, of course, in involving Russia invading in the first place. But then uh, will the U.S. provide various sorts of assistance, whether it's tanks or planes or long range or whatever? And and and. What do you think about that argument that the Biden administration has simply been too reluctant or, or maybe overly concerned with broadening the conflict or creating a, a sort of escalatory environment? Yeah, it's a tough this has been a tough one, right? Because on one hand, every time the administration has basically said, you know, uh, oh, we've got to be careful about Russia escalating. You know, if we cross certain lines, they're going to do X. Uh, X has never happened, right? Um, but then you go, well, maybe the fact that the U.S. initially was like, well, we can't do this, we can't do this, and then maybe socialized the idea over time and took it slowly 
made it harder for Russia to go, look at how quickly they're escalating. We have to escalate. So it's kind of hard to know which one's which. That said, I think we're, we're now at a point where it's hard to know how much more Russia could escalate, right? Other than, and we're not discounting this, the use of nuclear weapons, uh, which seems highly unlikely, but it is still, uh, you know, a tool they could reach for. Uh, it's hard to see how Russia could really escalate beyond uh, what they've already done. So I think that's why you're starting to see now less concern about sending fighter jets and longer-range weapons and other things. Um, but, of course, when the U.S. looks at its stockpiles, they want to make sure they they have enough to to fight China in case that ever happens. So that's also the, the bigger consideration in the background. But I do want to quickly go back to the fact that, look, after the invasion, the State Department was really basically saying, send everything, send everything. And whenever there were internal debates about sending long-range missiles or fighter jets, you know, the state would say, do it. And the Pentagon would go, well, we can't because of escalation and other reasons. And then the Pentagon would go and study it and come back, you know, a month or two later and go, okay, we can do it. And so the State Department had its hands up going, wait a minute, why didn't we just do this earlier? Why did we waste this whole month? And the Pentagon would say, well, we had to review all these things, you know, that there, and there's processes. But so this is sort of the banality of, <laughs> of the American response, but it does have real world consequences. Which is weird because you would expect, uh, on one level, the uh, Defense Department to be the gung-ho types and state to be, well, let's try diplomatic and so forth. And that's a, that's a real reversal from, I think, the conventional wisdom about that. No question. But I th- to a certain extent, look, look there, there are Ukraine hawks at the State Department. And I think yeah, they did try. We, we should not discount the fact that the U.S. was genuinely open, as were some European countries, to negotiating with Putin over his alleged concerns that, oh, there's been NATO expansion and Ukraine is moving more westward. And so that's why I'm doing this. Uh, they were open to having those conversations with the Kremlin. They, they you know, talked to the officials. They put out proposals. Um, they wanted to avoid a war basically at any cost. But the U.S. also wanted to be caught trying um, to, to sort of legitimize a forceful response should the Russians not make a deal at the table. So all this to say is that the State Department had kind of done its job and they went, OK. We tried, you know, they decided to invade, punish them. And the Pentagon, understandably, they are responsible for the weapons stockpiles. And when the Biden administration's messaging on this has been pretty bad, but they, when they say we've sent billions in weapons to Ukraine, it's, it's the value of the weapons in our stockpiles, not uh, necessarily the money uh, that we're sending to Ukraine, although we are sending stuff for economic aid and, and other things. So... The Pentagon is going, okay, well, we have to make sure we have enough for future wars, a.k.a. China. And they reviewed that and reviewed the worth of it, those weapons, et cetera, et cetera. And it took time. Uh, But you also, again, when you have Biden saying, do not start World War III, well, who's responsible for that? The Pentagon. So they had to they felt they had to do these really judicious, thorough reviews before greenlighting anything. And so you had a mismatch of uh, responsibilities and outlooks on this whole issue. You mentioned that concern about not starting World War Three, And of course, we felt that we weren't going to do that. And so it's more of a, I think, well, we don't know what Putin might be capable of. And, and that, that made me think about uh, an old international relations theory called the madman theory of politics. And that is you want to kind of have your, your adversaries not really be sure if you're entirely rational and God knows what you could do. So we better be careful. 
And in a way, I hear some folks on the Trump end arguing that, well, that's why uh, uh, this wouldn't have happened under Donald Trump, because he isn't this calculating, rational sort of person. And the invasion never would have happened in a Trump uh, in a Trumpian environment. And well, what do you was there any consideration of that, that Biden might actually be too rational for his own good in that sense? I, I think the, the you know the, there's no question that the Trump team has base, has made that argument. Although I should note, uh, you know, Putin did not withdraw troops at all because the invasion started in 2014. Really, uh, Putin did not withdraw any of his forces during the Trump years. But still, uh, no, the Biden team has has sort of thrown out the madman idea out of the, completely out the window for the reason that they think it's very important that Russia knows you know what the U.S. is is doing and why and and where its limits are. Right? They they're trying to put a lid on escalation. Um, and so they think that the madman idea can lead to more miscalculation. It could be sort of, it's high, it might be high risk, high reward. Um, but of course, when you, the high risk might not be uh, worth it when you're talking about the world's you know, most uh, nuclear armed country. In this case, I think what, but what you see in, in, the, in the international relations literature is that when you have two nuclear armed powers and they don't want to go to war, they basically can go up to that in terms of fighting uh, because they know that they aren't, they, don't, they aren't going to go for the ultimate weapon. Granted, U.S. troops are not involved here, uh, but the U.S. is, of course, Ukraine's biggest backer. But all this to say is that I think at the end of the day, there's been genuine concern, and there was openly, you know, the Russians were, it, it seemed like there was this moment where the Russians were toying with the nuclear idea. You saw the U.S. and other countries come out and say, you know, don't you do that. Don't you think about this. Um, I think we've gotten past that danger at this point. But that the the more deliberate response by Biden, I think, is not fully informed by fears of a nuclear attack by Russia, but not they're not separate either. There's a way we could sort of bring in all three of these things we've talked about, Afghanistan, Russia, Ukraine and uh, and China. And that some people said, well, uh, around the world, uh, our adversaries, Russia, China, watched, saw what happened in Afghanistan, that we were willing to cut and run. The Biden administration was willing to cut and run from its allies and did so in a very strategically, uh, militarily inept way. And so, therefore, that gives Putin the green light in uh, in Ukraine and potentially makes China look at Taiwan and say, hey, maybe this is doable. Well, what do you think about that? Well, this has been the Biden administration's case is that, um, well, they, they think Afghanistan is separate, right? They they argue that Afghanistan, that China would have loved for the U.S. to stay in Afghanistan because that would have committed time, troops and other resources to a fight that the U.S. was never going to win. Uh, when it comes to Ukraine, the Biden administration says, absolutely, she is looking. Uh, because if this is how the West rallies around, uh, you know, Russia's invasion, well, God knows what's going to happen if China decides to invade Taiwan. So when even when there's discussion about this national security supplemental, that's the Ukraine border, Israel, um, Indo-Pacific deal, they're saying, you know, she's watching this, too, because to not pass this not only helps Putin in Ukraine, but then by extension helps she in his desire to perhaps take Taiwan by force in the future. So they they do think that there's a bit of a domino theory here and that there's a bit of a that there is interrelation. I don't know how true that is. Right. I, I, I don't have the intelligence. I don't know if she is um, considering whether or not, uh, you know, the, the Russia, Ukraine example is pertinent to China, Taiwan. Uh, but in Washington, they certainly feel that it is. 
Let's shift over to the Middle East, which we haven't brought up to this point. Uh, there's, of course, a long history of U.S., very, very strong U.S. support for Israel. And Donald Trump, I would say, even more so than in previous administrations, sort of took sides, if you will, right, for Israel against the Palestinians uh, in a way that we really hadn't seen, in, at least in the recent past. Well, would you would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, look, Trump Trump was about as pro-Israel a president as there's ever been. Uh, and that's a, a badge of honor for him and for a lot of Republicans. And look, for Trump, I mean, to give the guy credit, I mean, a lot of American presidents said that they were going to move the embassy to Jerusalem, and then a lot of them balked. Trump did do it, and he got closer to Israel as a result, and he put forward a peace plan that was very lopsided for what Israel wanted, but they did get Israel to agree to it. And they got the Abraham Accord started, which is a policy that the Biden administration has followed um, almost to the T. They've tried to expand it, uh, but that is a clear continuation. So, yeah, I mean, look, Trump Trump got extremely close to, to Israel. Israel loved the Trump presidency. There's no question about that. And he was also um, dismissive of the Palestinian cause in this entire in that entire conflict um and so right now as you see a lot of especially um you know folks who are sympathetic to the palestinian cause saying i won't vote for biden because of his staunch support of israel here uh in its war against hamas well if you don't like the way team biden is treating the palestinians i doubt they're gonna like the way a trump a trump 2.0 will treat the palestinians but that's um that's for those who, who care about that issue to decide at the ballot box uh, but it's, you know, Trump showed his record, and that is that he's going to be extremely pro-Israel. He's going to side with Israel on, on, on mostly everything. Um, and if you care about the, the Palestinian issue, you know, Trump doesn't seem to care about it that much. So, so you feel that when the Biden people came in, they felt that they needed to sort of rebalance that relationship a little bit and that maybe the Trump stuff might might look good short term politically, but there would be some significant ramifications. Would that be kind of how, how they saw it coming in? Well, Biden's team felt that there was not going to be a two state solution, you know, negotiation that would be fruitful. So they chose to to basically bank shot that issue through the Abraham Accords and and, and most notably by making a deal with Saudi Arabia uh, to normalize relations between Israel in Saudi Arabia, and as part of that package would include, um, you know, a clear pathways and other uh, benefits for Palestinians. Although, let's be clear about this, even though the Biden administration argues today that they care deeply about the Palestinian issue from the beginning, it's just not the case. They didn't start to care about that until a few months before um, the October 7 attack by Hamas on Israel, as they were negotiating this normalization deal with Saudi Arabia. The Palestinian benefits came into play around that time. And no one, I don't think anyone could deny that there wasn't any real talk about, you know, that that deal was only going to happen uh, if there were benefits for Palestinians. But that came late, right? They got to that really, really late. And so that wound in the Middle East was festering this whole time, which is not to say that that's why Hamas did what they did. Hamas did that on their own and for their, for their own reasons. Um, but anytime the Biden team goes, oh, yeah, we cared about the Palestinian issue and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict from the get, and we were really working that, it's, I see really no evidence for that, except for the few months uh, right before October 7th 
uh, where they were making that deal with Saudi Arabia. So it's sort of a rhetorical commitment at best designed to maybe uh, placate sort of progressive left folks who are particularly concerned about that? I think so. And look, I traveled with Biden um, to when he went in 2021, I believe it was. Um, time escapes me now. Uh, maybe it was 2022. Uh, maybe, maybe it was 2022, uh, where Biden goes to Israel and Saudi Arabia, right? The famous fist bump meeting with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. Uh, there was an Israel stop before the fist bump meeting in Saudi Arabia. And uh, there, were, you know, I was there as he was at a press conference. He goes, you know, I'm a Zionist. I feel this cause in my bones. Uh, you know, this is a relationship I care deeply about. He was literally hugging, you know, everybody. Uh, even though the administration was saying he wasn't going to do it because of COVID and there were fist bump, you know, questions. Anyway, um, there was a quick trip to the Palestinian Authority um, in Ramallah, but that was quick. And there was just kind of like, oh, yeah, we'll give you some millions in aid here. But it just felt like a pro forma stop without real sense of um, care there. In fact, uh, this was not necessarily the press pool's fault, but we were sent um, to Saudi Arabia ahead of, of Biden's arrival there. Now, that was, of course, the White House's planning, but a lot of us who weren't in the pool couldn't go to Ramallah. We were put on the plane to Saudi. So even then, granted, those are logistical issues, but the objects of that weren't great, that we were there to cover Biden in Israel, and then only a small set of the pool could cover him in Ramallah, while the rest of us were going off to, to the big meat of the event, which was um, Biden fist-bumping MBS. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Iran, especially because in, in recent months, Iran has been sort of at least indirectly more in the news with everything happening with the uh, the Houthis and shipping and so forth. And uh, under the Obama administration, we tried an approach in foreign policy of greater engagement, right? That uh, particularly that deal to lift the uh, sanctions in exchange for Iran uh, halting development of nuclear weapons. Now, Donald Trump pulled us out of that agreement, even though it seemed like Iran was honoring its end the best we could tell. And it seemed like initially the Biden administration said, well, we want to go back to that policy of greater engagement. But it, it seems like they haven't really done that. And I, I wanted to get your take on, well, if that's you think that's correct. And if so, why hasn't that sort of thing happened? Engagement with Iran, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, well, look, the Biden administration tried. They tried to re to get back into the Iran nuclear deal. Um, it didn't happen for myriad reasons, but let's not, um, you know, let's not forget the fact that Iran did inch close, has has been inching closer to a nuclear breakout this entire time. Um, and so that always made things a bit more complicated. Now, Iran has been backing uh, the Houthis. Uh, has been backing Hamas, has been backing Hezbollah, has been attacking U.S. troops, uh, has been backing Iranian militia, backed militias um, that have been attacking U.S. troops in Syria and Iraq. So part of this is also, you know, Iran was not doing what it needed to do in order to improve ties with the U.S. So at the same time, you know, the, there was this good faith effort to have negotiations with Iran. Iran, perhaps because Trump withdrew the U.S. from the nuclear deal in 2018, felt that America could not be trusted. Plus, they were probably also aware that there might be a Trump comeback at some point. So they kind of went, you know, the other direction to go, OK, if we can't make a deal, we're just going to keep being aggressive. And it's hard to imagine uh, a Biden administration or any administration making deals with Iran uh, acting the way they are. I also want to talk to you a little bit about climate change, because that comes up in the book as well. And this is, I think, uh, a 
great example of an issue that is almost impossible to imagine being dealt with in any you know significant way without major international cooperation. And the Trump administration, obviously not a fan of multilateral agreements on this, right? They withdrew us from the Paris Accords. And I'm wondering how significant was that seen as by the Biden administration? And what uh, clearly, rhetorically, the Biden administration is much more for uh, mitigating the effects of climate change. But have they have they done a lot, would you say, in a substantive way to try to forge international consensus and agreements on this issue? Well, look, on day one, Biden re- restored the U.S. to the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, that was something that he promised to do and he did do. Uh, I finished writing the book in, in February of last year. And at that point, you know, I think it was fair to say that even though the Biden team had elevated climate issue and had done a lot of things, including investments in green technologies at home, uh, you know, when they came into office, they were saying that climate was an existential issue and their top national security priority. I don't think anyone, even the casual observer of the Biden administration, would say that they've treated climate with that level of urgency that they that they came into office uh, claiming that they would. Not to say that they haven't tackled it, but if by their own measure, there's no question that tackling climate um, has fallen down the priority list, even though they have worked on it uh, extensively. But I mentioned that the fact that I finished in February of last year, because there's now been that agreement at COP uh, in the Middle East where they, you know, these all these countries said they they were going to start moving away from fossil fuels for the first time. And so that that is a pretty significant uh, development. Who knows who's going to follow up on that? But to get countries to that point, to you know, work on climate, you know, as diligently as they have in the background, is still an accomplishment. But again, when they came in saying it would be the top national security priority, it was existential for the United States and other nations. Can they really claim outright that they've treated it with that sense of urgency? Um, I don't think they can. And so I think they failed by their own metric, which is not to say that they haven't made progress because they have. Right. Because even though they may believe it to be, in truth, the most important national security foreign policy issue politically, uh, there are other things that have to take precedence, basically. Yeah, they've got other things to worry, to to handle and worry about. Now, that doesn't mean America can't, you know, uh, walk and and chew gum at the same time. I mean, if you're if you're bombing Houthi targets and you're. Uh, going after Iranian militias and you're aiding Israel and bringing aid into Hamas, excuse me, into Gaza, and you are, you know, helping Ukraine defend off Russia, doesn't mean you still can't be investing in green technologies and working with other countries to lower carbon emissions and other things like that. But the way Biden was talking about and the way his team was talking about the issue, it seemed like almost every part of their foreign policy was going to revolve around climate change. They would prioritize that. There was even immense concern at the start of the administration. I mean, remember this. There were folks who thought, you know, Biden might stop talking about the Uyghurs and other Chinese abuses in order to make a deal with China on climate change. Like that was that's how much they talked about climate. There was that level of concern. Obviously, they've gone far more into punishing China than they've gone uh, into into making uh, deals with China on climate, so it's um, it, it's a trade off, right? These are trade offs in foreign policy. There's no, you know, you it's it's hard to do everything you're going to set out to do, and it's not like it's not like they haven't been doing things. It's just that they they really did come in thinking they were going to save the world and make climate the top priority, make it 
make everyone focus on it. But of course, uh, the world doesn't cooperate with your plans. And so they've had to pivot accordingly. But, you know, again, you can't, I don't think it's, it's responsible for any analyst of an administration to sort of go, well, yes, of course, you know, things are complicated. It's true. Things are complicated, but that's not how they were talking about it when they came in. They were going to save the world. They were going to uh, stop climate change from being um, as big an issue as it is. And uh, they have not succeeded by that metric. When, when I think about the Trump foreign policy and comparing it to Biden, I, I, I tend not to give Donald Trump uh, credit for a lot in, in the area of foreign policy. I think he did a lot wrong. But I, I guess I will give him some credit for trying something a little bit different, a lot different, actually, in, in case of North Korea, by talking, having those direct uh, president to dictator, I guess you'll call them talks with, with Kim Jong-un, though it ended up not accomplishing much. And I'm wondering what the Biden administration's approach to North Korea has been, how it's differed from the Trump administration's approach and, and what that has yielded. It seems like not a whole lot, I would guess. Look, I, I've been very critical of, of the Biden administration on North Korea. I think they've it, it, has, it has just not worked out the way they planned. Trump for for. Look, it is no one believes that North Korea is going to rid itself of nuclear weapons, right? No, literally no one does. Um, the, the intelligence community has always has long felt this way, um, but there was maybe always this hope that North Korea would make some sort of deal to maybe freeze its program or, or something. But the notion that it was going to dismantle its nuclear program was always unlikely, if not um, impossible. But I think the novelty of Trump talking to Kim Jong Un there made some sort of sense because if you get the top guys buy-in, then maybe they do something, right? You can always have all these working-level talks all you want, but at some point, it's the big guys that have to make a decision. And so to do the sort of inverse uh, of traditional diplomacy was worth a shot because, you know, the, the regular uh, method didn't <laughs> work for decades. Biden's uh, approach here has been not dissimilar in the sense that they've said, look, you know, we will talk at any point without preconditions about anything you want. And the North Koreans have not reached out, right? They have, they have not responded to that. There have been no working level talks as far as I know. Um, and of course, Kim Jong-un has proceeded to make more nuclear weapons and improve his arsenal. So this entire time, through the Trump years and, and the Biden's first term, North Korea has gotten a stronger arsenal. Now, you talk to Team Biden, they'll say, yes, that may be true, but look how much closer we are with Japan and South Korea. We've even had a, a historic meeting at Camp David with the two, with, with the countries. Uh, and we're showing a united front, not only against North Korea, but against China. So we've strengthened our alliances. Fine. That's all well and good. I'm not denying the Biden team that. But if the main goal of U.S. policy is to either freeze or dismantle North Korea's arsenal, that has not happened on Biden's watch. We've gotten friendlier with regional countries. That's all well and good. But North Korea remains as dangerous, if not more dangerous, um, since the start of the Biden administration. I don't think they can claim that really a success at all. There, there are some people who I recall at the time uh, of those meetings between uh, uh, Trump and Kim Jong-un uh, argued that essentially, well, Kim Jong-un was playing Trump for a sucker. And Trump is a is a big fan of these strongmen, dictator folks, whether it's you know Kim Jong-un or Erdogan or uh, a, a bunch of others, and that he could be more easily manipulated by them. And, and I think this is an important point, because given the fact that we're going to either see four more years of Biden foreign policy or maybe four more years of Trump foreign policy, 
that that could matter a lot. What do you think about that characterization as of Trump being far more manipulable than than Biden on these issues? I mean, I, I think the record is pretty clear on that, right? I mean, it, Trump sort of one on one can be um, swayed. I mean, there's no question that the Saudis, when they put his face on hotels, they gave him this sort of swanky opening. You know, it's one reason, not the only reason, but but one reason why he really loves Saudi Arabia so much. They treated him so well. Japan, Shinzo Abe Shinzo, then the prime minister, came out, gave gifts to Trump and spoke with him often. And they had a very good relationship. Xi Jinping went to Mar-a-Lago. Uh, Putin would keep telling Trump, look, I didn't interfere. And Trump in Helsinki famously was like, look, I, I believe him. He said he didn't do it. So I believe him. And this um, that happened again and again. However, I think the characterization goes a bit too far because Trump does have in his mind what he thinks is fair and what he thinks should should be um, done. So let's let's we talk about North Korea. Let's talk about that. When they when he met with Kim Jong Un in Hanoi, Kim kind of came with a pretty weak deal. He was saying, "Look, we can. I'll dismantle this, you know, historic um, nuclear site Yangbyon for uh, you know, some sort of uh, sanctions relief." And Trump said, you know, you don't want a big deal. You're not really looking to deal here. And they and he walked away from the table, uh, which I think most analysts would say that was the right decision. So Kim might have calculated that he could sucker Trump into something. And despite how friendly they were and, and how you know they write love letters and all that, quote unquote, like Trump walked away from what many think was a bad deal. And I've talked to people around Trump and he prepared hard for that meeting. You know, he understood the stakes. He understood what Kim might offer and and, and what could be. Uh, you know, on the table. And Trump saw that Kim went below even those expectations. So he walked. It's another reason why I think, you know, Kim felt embarrassed by that, right? He he put himself out there. Trump walked away. Kim has not re really returned to the table because I don't think he trusts the deal with the U.S. anymore. Um, so that has hampered Biden's approach. But still, you know, it is no it's no question that one on one Trump can be um, persuaded but he does have his own mind and he can walk away. And I should finally note that even though he was friendly with Putin, for example, or with Xi Jinping, the U.S. policy towards Russia and China was relatively strong during the uh, during the Trump years. Right. There were sanctions on Russia very constantly. The tariffs on China, um, sanctions on China, the, the you know, saying that they were committing genocide against Uyghurs. I mean, there, there's sort of the two levels of analysis. There's the one on one dynamic with Trump and then there's the administration he runs. Will we see that same dynamic in a second Trump administration? I don't know. But that was sort of a split screen that we kept seeing. And so it, it, it seems to me that even though, you know, Joe Biden came in with an awful lot of foreign policy experience and some strong views and principles, the argument that Donald Trump is unprincipled on this really isn't quite right. He's certainly more amenable to flattery and that kind of manipulation, but his principle of maybe not being played for a sucker, not being seen as weak or a loser, is in a way kind of a uh, an overarching foreign policy. And maybe he feels that to a greater extent even than, say, Joe Biden might. I, I don't want to necessarily say that there's, you know, Biden has principles too. Sure, I mean, sure. everyone's got their own Everyone's got their own views on things. But I will say that, you know, Trump can be his own man on a lot of things. Um, lest we forget when Iran uh, downed an unmanned drone uh, during the Trump years, you had then National Security Advisor John Bolton and Pompeo, um, the Secretary of State, advising Trump to kill Iranians um, in, re in response. And Trump said no. He, he called back the strike. 
because he felt it was it wouldn't be proportional, right? He didn't think that the the downing of an unmanned American drone was you know was a, uh, that that required the killing of maybe a hundred or so Iranians. Um, to which Bolton in his book said that was the worst ever decision he'd seen a president make. Lest we forget he was in the Bush administration during Iraq, but still, like that's um, you know that's Trump going against his own team. Right. Also, there he had. The, uh, then National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster and many others in his administration say he, Trump needed to send far more troops into Afghanistan. And for nine or so months, he resisted them. And in the end, he put 3,000 troops more into Afghanistan, but far fewer than, than they were asking. He, kind of, he gave in a little bit, but really not a lot. And he basically said, what is the theory of victory here? And no one could uh, outline that for him, similarly to how no one could outline that for Biden. So, we, yes, as, as you said, you know, Trump. Uh, there are ways and there are levers to pull uh, when it comes to moving Trump in your direction. But there's no denying that he has his own compass on, on many issues and on some pretty consequential issues. And as does Biden. What, what's interesting to me here is, is a picture emerges. Of, of course, I think almost everyone agrees that Joe Biden is, is a, a serious person who's thought extensively about foreign policy for, well, for generations at this point. But the picture you're painting of Donald Trump is very different from sort of a totally disengaged clown who's spending all his time on social media and in rallies, but on a number of issues that he actually is a, a somewhat serious person who's really put in the work on some of these issues. Is that is that a fair characterization, would you say? I wouldn't say he's necessarily put in the work. I mean, he has done work, right? And I, and you know, intel briefers or others who have talked to Trump say he asks questions, you know, he has his own thoughts and he will ramble and and he will uh, monologue and pontificate, but he will often ask the right questions um, and he will work to understand issues. But he is, I don't want to go too far. I mean, he is mostly guided by views he's held for a very long time. Um, you know, having read a lot of his books, I mean, some of the ideas he's saying now are things he said in the 80s. He, he, he has a through line and he has a way of thinking that is unmovable. Um, but he will do the work on, on certain key areas. And he did learn a lot while he was in office. Um, so this notion that he's, you know, is he on social media often? Yes. Is he? Is he persuaded by dictators sometimes? Yes. Is he, um, you know, swayed by the last person he's talked to? Yes. Uh, does that mean he? Oh, that's always true? No. Um, that he is. He made some pretty big calls, uh, even though he was advised against it on many occasions. So it's not like he's just always the tool for somebody. He is his own man and will make his own calls. Um, and and often based on ideas he's either held for a long time or his instincts based on the situation in hand. Moving back to the Biden administration, because as usual, Donald Trump sucks out so much of the oxygen out of any given room or interview uh, when it's not the intent. But uh, thinking about the Biden administration's record on foreign policy, if they if the administration wanted to make a case that they have done a good job and actually it should be if, if you're a voter, if you're someone concerned about America's position in the world and, and saving the world, as, as we talked about at the beginning, what what's their what's their case based on primarily at this point? Would you say looking back at their record and their successes as they would see them? I mean, if they 
which I think you're going to see as part of their re-election message. But what I'm assuming they will say is, look, we rallied, we rallied, we, we, we got closer to allies. And because of that, we were able to rally the world to Ukraine's cause. Russia um, has not overtaken Ukraine. It's got more territory, but it is, you know, the West is on the rise. NATO has been strengthened. In fact, NATO expanded um, with Finland and very likely Sweden uh, or, you know, Sweden will enter uh, pretty soon. Um, we China has not invaded Taiwan. In fact, we've competed with China. We now have more manufacturing jobs uh, than we have in, in recent years. We've kept their their economy is declining while ours is thriving. Uh, yes, there was inflation, but the soft landing in America was far softer than anywhere else. We've gotten um, we've improved our position in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we've gotten closer to India, Japan, South Korea, Australia. Uh, the U.S. has also made advancements in key technologies, whether that's green tech that's going to dominate the economy of the future or artificial intelligence. We've made advances um, on combating climate change. And uh, yeah, I mean, basically, and, and democracy uh, has been defended not only at home, but abroad. Uh, they, I think that's the kind of record that they will tout. Oh, and we got out, we have avoided World War III despite you know, all of the problems and, and hotspots in the world. And we've extracted the U.S. from an unwinnable war. I think you'll hear a lot of that. Uh, I don't know if that's going to persuade a bunch of voters, but they have a good story to tell. That said, you know, Trump can tout a lot of things that he did um, during his years uh, to, to to counter some of that. He can say, look, you know, if foreign policy, there's no question that, you know, as much focus as there is on domestic policy um, in president, presidential elections and in general news coverage, a lot of that depends on Congress. A lot of that depends on the Supreme Court. A lot of that depends on internal uh, uh, domestic political calculation. Foreign policy is almost solely, at this point, the discretion of the National Security Council and the president. So the fact that Biden is going to go up against another president um, who you know, made his own choices and, and kind of do what he wants. That's a harder distinction to make for Biden because, you know, Trump can say, here's what I did and here's what I will do. Whereas, you know, the, the congressional machinations and, and calculations, all that will hinder any of their domestic agendas. I want to close by uh, uh, kind of pulling back a little bit. You've covered foreign policy for a while. You've thought an awful lot about it. It's literally been your job. And so w when you kind of take the broad view of U.S. foreign policy, uh, what would you say is the thing that gives you the greatest amount of concern? And then finally, if we can close on an optimistic note, what, if anything, makes you feel maybe at least somewhat optimistic about the future? Well, I think the caution is that um, and I'm basically going to give the same answer to both, actually, okay. but I think because there's a pro because there's a pro and a con to it. I think the con to this, well, let me step back. The moment we're in is now a moment where the U.S. is far more conscious about the domestic aspects of our foreign policy. You know, there's, why are we sending money abroad? <clears throat> Excuse me. Why are we focusing on wars abroad or sending money abroad when we've got problems at home, right? That's a question that, that Trump asked and that Biden has tried to answer. And because of that, I think you are seeing the U.S. give up some of its traditional uh, focuses around the world and, and possibly uh, relinquishing a bit of its uh, strength because they want to focus 
more uh, on the domestic front than than the global front. There, everyone, a lot of people call this um, isolationism. America is not an isolationist. Trump is not an isolationist. Mac um, is not isolationist. But there is a sense of restraint, or there is a sense of you know not doing so much. There's just the domestic first, right? America first, like focus on the home, and that is something that Biden has done too. The fact that they're moniker is a foreign policy for the middle class implies that there's a major domestic focus. So that that is causing issues when you think about America's global role, the fact that there's even been this debate over, well, maybe we don't keep helping Ukraine unless we make some sort of border deal. That's part of this. Now, that's a potential con. The potential pro is maybe it was high time that the U.S. started to think about Americans more as we dealt, dealt abroad. The fact that, you know, after World War II, the America was the undisputed superpower. You know, we we had basically unlimited resources and unlimited strength, and we could do what we wanted, and we weren't thinking, right? It's um, you just had too much money, so you could just throw money at the problem effectively. And at, and when the Soviet Union fell, we were the unipole, we were the, the the hegemon and the strong power again. So we still didn't need to think, and we could sort of run rush run roughshod around the world. And make some stupid decisions, but it not affect us as much. Now, if we make stupid decisions, it affects us more because other countries have risen, in part because of the world to help America helped make that that rose all boats around the world. So maybe it was high time uh, that the U.S. started focusing more on the domestic aspects of America's global strength because we've let that sap as we focus on other issues in the world, whether it be wars or uh, helping other economies or things like that. And so maybe if there is more focus on the U.S. Americans get stronger, and by extension, America gets stronger, which is something that we probably can do while still maintaining a leadership role. And that I think that is the fine line Biden's team has tried to walk. I'm not saying they've done that perfectly or successfully, but it is interesting that that is sort of the conclusion they came to from adopting some elements of of America first Trumpism and blending it into the traditional uh, views that Biden and his team have held for for many years. They they have now charted. I think between Obama, Trump, and Biden, there's now a middle course that America is 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 charting that could be beneficial uh, in the long run. All right. Well, on that note, we will close. Alexander Ward, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope you like the book. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you're not already a supporter of the show, I hope you'll consider becoming one because without our supporters, we wouldn't be able to do this. And when you become a supporter, you get not just that warm, fuzzy feeling knowing that you're supporting a good cause. I like to think we're a good cause, but you also get stuff like ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get our supporter-exclusive midweek show, the full length of that, not just the preview. And you also get to be part of our Discord group if you want. And there's always some interesting conversations going on there. At the $10 a month level or more, you get to actually be part of the episodes Jay and I I do if that's something you're interested in. So there's a lot of stuff is what I am saying. And I hope you'll consider checking it out. And to do that, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you want to support us on Venmo, we're at politics guys. You can also support the show through PayPal and all of our support links are always in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And as always, I want to close with a very special thank you to our wonderful executive producers. Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby.